Good morning. Um, just uh, wanted to do a quick survey. If um, Just by a raise of hands, if you could. Um, have you guys seen the film Amadeus? All right. All the old folks. And uh, yeah, but I'm going to help you through this. Um, in the, you know, Amadeus is a movie uh, put out in 1984. It's a great film. You should go watch it and culture yourselves. And um, the movie centers around two characters. And one of them, his name is Salieri. And he is a court musician who is obsessed and seething with jealousy over his peer. And that's the other main character. And his name is Mozart. And Salieri is an accomplished musician in his own right. But he simply does not have the generational talent and gifts that come naturally to Mozart. He wants it so bad. He works so hard on his craft, and yet he just doesn't have it. He doesn't have what Mozart has. And there's this one famous scene, you can watch it later on YouTube, where Salieri composes a musical piece for Mozart's arrival. And Salieri, it's a, you can just imagine a room with all these musicians, there's royalty in there, and Salieri has the piece in his hands, and the emperor of Austria, who happens to be in the room, uh, wants to play the piece. And so Salieri gives the piece over, and the emperor of Austria is trying to play the piece on the piano, but he's messing up because it's not an easy piece to play. It's a masterpiece in its own right. And while he is playing, Mozart waltzes into the room. The emperor of Austria stands up, gives him the sheet music, and says, this is yours. Salieri has composed this in your honor. Here's the gift for you, and now that you have the music, you can play it. To which Mozart says, you keep it. I don't need it. The emperor responds, you don't need it. And Mozart says, no, I have it up here. And the emperor questions, after hearing it just once? And Mozart says, I have it memorized. The emperor says, show me. And so Mozart sits down and he is plunking out the melody that he has just heard. Everyone in the room is amazed at this piece of music. Salieri is standing there and you could just see the glee in his face because Mozart is playing his piece. And while Mozart is playing, he looks at everyone and he says, it doesn't work, does it? And everyone all of a sudden becomes uncomfortable. And Salieri is just, faces, he's mortified. And Mozart on the spot says, it doesn't work. Maybe, what about if I, and he adds and improvises to the song. He adds more depth, he adds more character, more resonance to the music, and it sounds less like a children's song now. And it sounds something more mature, something you can call a masterpiece for real. And everyone in this room is enthralled with Mozart, but Salieri, you could just see and imagine the look on his face. He is humiliated. He is seething with anger. This is one of the most human scenes, I think, because we see an emotion and a feeling that plagues Salieri. Not just in the scene, but just throughout the entire movie. The entire movie is about Salieri and his desire for this one thing. That's all he wants. He wants it so badly. He just wants to be better than Mozart. So much so that his life's purpose becomes one where he is striving, dreaming, working after just this one thing. I just want to be better than Mozart. And it's something that you and I, everyone in this room, can relate to. 
because we have all said at one point in our lives, maybe even currently, probably currently in our lives, we are saying, if I could just have this one thing, my life would be perfect. If I could just have this, I would be happy. All my problems will go away. Life would be meaningful. I will be satisfied. I will feel fulfilled. And there's much to be found and said in today's passage, Genesis 29, and we're going to bleed into 30. It is about the little birth of the nation of Israel. Right before our very eyes in Genesis 29 and 30, we are reading about the birth of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. It's littered with all this family drama between Jacob and his father-in-law, between his two wives, between his wives and their father, Jacob's father-in-law. And yet there's one thing, there's one major thing that I think this passage wants to show us. And within that major thing, there are three things that I want to break it down into. And so here are the three things that I think this passage has to teach us. And the first one is this, that there is an overpowering human drive and desire to find someone or something to complete them. We all have this desire to find purpose and fulfillment, to be happy. If I can use the language of we all have this hole in our hearts that we just so desperately want to fill with someone or something. And the second thing is the devastation and fruitlessness that normally comes with this pursuit. You see, we have all walked down this road and we know what will greet us at the end of it. And what will greet us at the end of it is a sense of devastation, a sense of, man, thought this would be it, only to find out that it isn't. And the last point is, what can we do about this longing then? This sense, this desire, this drive for wholeness, for completion, for fulfillment. And more specifically, how does the gospel save us from this? The first point is this, the overpowering human drive and desire to find someone or something to complete them. If you can look with me in chapter 29, the first half of verse 31, a very, very sobering verse. It reads this, in 29, verse uh, 31, the first half, it reads, The Lord saw uh, that Leah was hated. Some translations will say unloved, but I want you to understand the word is hated. Right? Jacob hated it wasn't like Rachel, his other wife, was the apple of his eye. He loved her, and she was so great. And there was Leah, who was also his wife and um, didn't love her as much, but, you know, she was still there, this sweet little old lady. It wasn't like that. Jacob hated her. And one can understand why. Remember last week, we learned that Jacob worked seven long years for Rachel's hand in marriage. He wanted to marry her only to be deceived and duped on the wedding night. Expecting Rachel got Leah instead. And so he would have to work seven more years for Rachel's hand in marriage. So if you can imagine with me, if you're Jacob, when you see Leah, can you imagine what you are seeing? You are seeing just the deceit, the trap that you fell into. Take a look at the rest of verse 31 with me. It reads, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So the scriptures tell us that God looks upon Leah with compassion. Her own husband hates her, 
But God has compassion on her and shows her grace and mercy and opens up her womb. And the next couple of verses, what we see is it is devoted to Leah having sons, four of them to be specific. And we are given a glimpse into Leah's heart. We are given a lens into what is her pursuit. Her idea of what will bring her fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose, and happiness. She's going to run after these things hard. Take a look at verse 32 with me. It reads, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Leah has Reuben, the firstborn, surely a moment for great celebration. And yet, He's given the name Reuben. And Reuben in the Hebrew, it's intentional. It sounds awfully like the verse, I am miserable. The Lord has seen my misery. The Lord has seen my affliction. And what is the cause for her misery and affliction? She is so desperately missing the one thing that she wants. She's missing her husband's love. All she wants is so desperately to be loved by her own husband, Jacob. And her hope and prayer with Reuben that maybe, just maybe, my husband will love me. Verse 33 continues. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And so she called his name Simeon. So verse 33 gives us an update on how it's going with Leah and her pursuit for this one thing that will satisfy her. And you would think maybe, just maybe after Reuben, that Leah would be satisfied, fulfilled. And yet we see here the second nun, the second son, Simeon. The name sounds like the Hebrew word for here, Shema. And Leah says, the Lord has heard that I am hated by my husband. Verse 34, another one. I made that joke. Do you guys, some of you get that joke? I made that joke in the first service. Not many people understood. Some of you guys understand, which is good. Another one. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Here we have Leah still holding out hope for the love of her husband. Now, please, maybe this time, after three sons, my husband will be attached to me. Just maybe he will draw closer to me. All these names, all these sons, an expression of her longing for Jacob, an expression of her heart, her hopes, her dreams, her desires, her pursuit for one thing, the love of her husband. If I could just have his love, my life will amount to something. It will be worth living. If I could just... Have his love. And it doesn't just have to be love or relationship that we place our hope and our trust in. Because we have Leah's sister, Rachel. And what we know about Rachel is what the text tells us in the previous verses. It says that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. What is that? Double beautiful. She's amazing. Everyone loves her. Jacob worked 14 years for her. Leah, on the other hand, the only physical attribute given to her is that her eyes are weak. So Rachel is beautiful, 
Her husband worked 14 long years just to marry her. You would think that she's satisfied. You would think that she has everything, everyone. And yeah, take a look at chapter 30, verse 1 with me. It reads, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Rachel had it all. Beautiful. Husband loves her. And yet her hope for her life, the thing that she was running after, the thing that she thought would bring her happiness and fulfillment could only be found in children. So much so that if she didn't have kids, life would not even be worth. She said, give me children or I'm going to die. I'm like, oh, that's extreme. And yet that's a human sentiment that we can all relate to. Because we have all felt that before. To be honest, we probably feel it right now. We have all said something along these lines. All I need is X, Y, and Z. All I need is fill in the blank as you will. And I will be happy. If I could just get this job. If I could just hit that number then I would be paid to do something that I love to do and my life would feel so much better. I'll be happy. If I could just make this amount of money, then finally I'd be able to breathe a little bit. All I need is enough just to feel comfortable. And that's what I need, that number. Or if I can get into this house, because the house I'm living in right now is too small. It's not in a good enough neighborhood. But this new place, if I get in there, be everything I always wanted. I'd be happy, I'd be satisfied. If my kid was just a little different, if my kid would not be this way, but that way, then all my problems would be gone. I would be happy. If I could go on that vacation to that location, if I could experience that thing, then surely I will be satisfied. And yet what we have in today's passage is a sobering reminder of the human condition, the human heart, our hearts, that all of us in this room are in search of, in pursuit of, dreaming of these things. Purpose, meaning, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, what have you. And where does this pursuit lead us? We all know. That's point number two. It leads us to devastation. It leads us to dissatisfaction. It is fruitless. We are always left with wanting more. While we're here in chapter 30, if you can take a look at verse 22 to 24 with me, and we'll work backwards back into 29. Here's Rachel. The one thing that she wants is a son. And in chapter 30, verse 22 to 24, we are told that God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. And so Rachel conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. God has taken away my shame. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. You see, Rachel does end up having the child she so desperately dreamt of. The answer to her plea, 
she had that hole finally filled? My purpose, my life, my happiness, my satisfaction, the son that is going to make my life all better, the very one who will take away my shame, she says. And again, we have a glimpse into Rachel's heart with the naming of her son, Joseph. Just one more, please. Can I get one more? Rachel got what she wanted. Still not satisfied. Still empty. Still not complete. Could I get one more? And we see it with Leah as well in verses 31 to 35 of chapter 29. Maybe this time with Reuben, Jacob will finally see me and all will be okay. No? Okay. Well, maybe this time with Simeon, my husband, will hear me and I'll be happy. No? Okay, then just maybe this time I'm going to give him Levi. Will he draw closer to me? Maybe this time I will be satisfied. After all these years, Jacob, will you love me? Have I done enough? Have I shown myself? Have I proven myself to you? You know, in his memoir, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, Matthew Perry, or to us, we know him as Chandler Bing. You guys know Chandler Bing from Friends? It was remarkable to me, his honesty, and really sobering um, in just the way that he shared in his struggle with, this, his, with his desire for fame, with his desire for addiction and relationships. And I'm going to read some of the quotes that he has as he is walking through his life. This is what he writes when he first found out he got the part for Chandler for Friends. I was going to fill all the holes with friends. The attention that I always felt had eluded me was now about to fill every corner of my life. Like a room illuminated by a flash of lightning, people were going to like me now. I was going to be enough. Right when he found out about friends. The second, a couple years down the line, I am constantly filled with a lurking loneliness, a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside of me will fix me, but I've had all that the outside has to offer. He describes his pursuit. He says, whatever holes you're, feeling, you're filling seem to be opening back up. It's like whack-a-mole. I was a kid from Canada who had all his dreams come true, but they were just the wrong dreams. Rachel, Leah, Chandler, Matthew Perry, you and I, we have all been down this road. The gnawing, the aching, the realization that I have given my hope, my life, all of it to the pursuit of this thing, thinking that it will give me happiness, only to find yourself feeling empty. And C.S. Lewis writes about it so beautifully. It's a long quote, but I'm going to read it for you anyway. He reads this, so it'll be on the screen. It said, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. 
The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And here's the kicker. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm talking about the best possible ones. A brutally honest picture of the human condition tells it like it is, not in the way that it ought to be. That the human drive, the pursuit for fulfillment and happiness, to find someone or something that's going to make you feel complete, to fill all the holes of emptiness that you feel inside, it's going to end in devastation. It's the wrong dream. The disappointment, the disillusion that comes along with this pursuit, you know where that road will end. And so the third and last point for us is this, how does the gospel save us then from that pursuit? If you can circle back with me to chapter 29, verses 31 through 35, we've run through it. We have already seen a glimpse into Leah's struggle through the naming of her sons. With every son, Leah is putting her hope in her husband that this time, maybe this is the time he will love me, that this is the time everything will be okay. And while Leah is focused on one thing, the love of her husband, she's fixated upon it, she wants him to see her, she is running after it, she just wants him. That's all I need, for you to love me. That's all I need, you to draw closer to me. And yet, verses 31 through 35, it is littered with language that it is not Jacob who sees, it is not Jacob who loves, it is not Jacob who draws close, it is the Lord who sees Leah. It is the Lord who loves. It is the Lord who draws close. And when Leah conceives for the first, fourth time to Judah, what we see is the reorienting of her heart. Her heart's deepest desires, the longing for love, the longing for fulfillment. We see in verse 35 that she has decided, I am going to put them in the Lord. Take a look at verse 35 with me. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. I love that phrase, this time. After all the other times, after all the other failed times, after all the other times where I've been disillusioned by the world and what it has to offer, after that time where I try to pursue the perfect family, only to find that, ugh. After that time, I try to pursue the perfect career, ugh. Finding ourselves constantly exhausted and still empty. This time, though, there's no mention of her husband, no mention of her child. This time, I will praise the Lord, for he is the only one who can truly, truly satisfy you know, in Greek mythology, in the book Odyssey, the set of poems, you guys read the Odyssey? Some of you? Okay, well, it's a set of poems written by the Greek poet Homer. He writes in of, a, of an island, and it's the island of the sirens, sirens, sorry, the island of the sirens. And whenever a ship sails across the sea and passes the island, the sirens begin to sing. And the sirens, we are told, 
sing the most beautiful song that any man has ever heard. And the sweetness of their song and of their voices and the allure of what they promise, it draws every sailor that passes the island to the shores of the island. But it is a ruse. For what the sailors find on the island is not beauty. Instead, they are met with monsters that eat them alive. But there is a hero. His name is Jason. Jason and his friends, they need to pass this island. And so what Jason does, he, is, he, is, he hires his friend, Orpheus, to travel with him on the ship. And you see, Orpheus is the greatest musician in all of the world. And Orpheus's task is just this. That as they pass the island of the sirens, Orpheus has to play the most beautiful songs that he can imagine and think of. And so they get on the boat. They set sail. And as they are passing the island, the men of the boat have no desire to go to the island. Because Orpheus's songs were far richer, far more enticing, far more beautiful than anything the sirens had to offer. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the presence of Jesus Christ, is sweeter music. It gives deeper pleasure, greater satisfaction, more fulfillment than any sirens that our world has to offer. And it is guaranteed for you and I that it is not something that can be taken away. You see, over and over in our study through the book of Genesis, we have seen a common thread, a pattern, if you will, of the continual wandering of man, this tendency to wander into sin, into thinking that surely this time I will find satisfaction in that, only to realize, no, I'm not. It is only in him. It has always been only him. And so we come back only to wander off yet again. And in God's grace, again, to be wooed back. And then only again to wander off. And yet this pattern of unselfishness we see in Genesis and in our lives too is consistently met with God's faithfulness. The reminder that it is not in the ability of man it is not in the character of man. It is not in the accomplished of man that we are saved. But it is in God and God alone. And we see that reminder again here today. You see, if you take a look at verse 35 with me, Leah says, This time I will praise the Lord, and his name shall be Judah. Who is Judah? Well, Matthew 1 in the New Testament tells us that it is from this line of Judah that we will see the king, that Jesus will come that he will be the one to fulfill every longing and desire. We see in Hebrews 7 that the king, the Messiah, the deliverer, the promised one will come from the line of Judah. We were reminded again in the midst of all this unfaithfulness, in the midst of the brokenness of God's people, you and I included, that it is in this line that the world will receive the greatest blessing it has ever seen, that it is in the line of Judah the king will come the king who will come not just to save, 
but to fulfill, to satisfy, to bring true happiness. Friends, what an opportunity for us today. Every single heart in this room, when we ask the question, what is it that you are trying to fill the hole in your heart with? It is not difficult for us to find an answer. And yet we are reminded today of the goodness of God. The the sovereignty of God, the hand of God. The patience of God, the mercy of God. That as he sees his children wandering off, he's able to say, you know. Come back. I'm here. You know I'm the only one. My prayer is that you and I will have the humility, the discernment, the ability to see, not only identify the things that we are running after, but the ability to see we know where this road leads. And this time, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to find my happiness and fulfillment in Him. Let me pray and close our time together today. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. God, that as we hear these stories about the birth of the nation Israel, as we hear these stories that seem so outdated and just weird sometimes, it just seems to not relate. We, we pray, Lord, that we would put our faith in your word, that you say that your word is living, that it is active, that it pierces our hearts at the appropriate time, at the appropriate moment, specifically to us. And so we pray, Lord, for humility. We pray that we will be able to discern your voice in what is happening in our life, that we will be able to say confidently, God, this time I'm coming to you. This time, I will put my hope in you. We pray for the strength and courage to be able to say that this week, Lord. We love you so much. Help us love you more. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name.